Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. You have your copy of God's Word. If you'll turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We've been in a series on Mission Possible. I started the year out preaching on how to live on mission. That this year we were going to be a church that lived on mission. And I'm challenging you to serve. I'm challenging you to live on mission. To live out what God has uh, redeemed you for. And to be the kind of person that God can use. And so... Living on mission, we, we said we want to reach all and, uh, and, and touch all. We want to disciple those. Uh, uh, we want to disciple uh, all of those that want to be disciples. We want to disciple them. We want to teach them. And then we want to send those out that are called. And uh, when I say send out, I'm not talking about just mission, going out into another country. I'm talking about sending you to your job, sending you to your family, sending you to a community where you can touch the community where you live in. And so that's living on mission. And so we started the book of Nehemiah a couple of weeks ago, and I spent the first chapter talking about prayer. I did three sermons on prayer and talking about the power of prayer, that You cannot have any kind of mission at all until it begins with the instruction that comes from God through the power of prayer. And so prayer is always the foundation of everything we do. We can't move. We can't do anything until we hear the heartbeat of God, until we hear God's voice. And I challenge you to be in prayer. I challenge you to go before God in prayer. And we talked about what prayer does when we enter into prayer. What does it do in our life? And so now in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah, you know the story. He had called out to God and prayed. He had heard that in his, that Jerusalem laid in ruin. Uh, It was his homeland. He was born into captivity, but he wanted to go home. He heard that something stirred in him, that he heard that Jerusalem was in ruins, and he felt in his heart that God was stirring him to go back to lead a team, to lead and, and to live on mission, to go back, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, reinstitute the temple, and again to bring revival back to a nation that was dying or death. And so it stirred his heart. And so he began to pray. And for four months he prayed. And he prayed for four months. And he went before the king. And finally the king had granted him permission to come back. And gave him resources to come back with. And to come with. And so Nehemiah starts this journey. This 1800 mile journey. From where he was uh, into Jerusalem. On this assignment. On mission. And so in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to go to a couple verses of scripture this morning, but we're going to start there. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah heads out. Now when he heads out, he asks the king if the king could give him documents or permission that he is able to travel, that he is able to go to Jerusalem, that he has by the authority of the letter that he was giving, that he has permission to go on the journey. He had permission to walk the journey, to go through the places he was going as he made his way to the destination place that God had for him, which was to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. I got to thinking about that. Nehemiah was wise. And so he had the king to draw up these documents, and he had these things in hand. And I thought to myself, how often when we live on mission, 
How good is it to know that we have a written document that comes from the authority of the king of kings in our lives, which is the word of God that we carry with us as we live on mission? Y'all with me this morning? Huh? <clears throat> because this gives us the authority to walk in the believer's victory. Y'all with me this morning? This is the authority by which we live and walk with. And so the, the opposition can come and say, hey, you can't do that. But I'm here to tell you the word says that I can do that. The devil will lie and say that you are not. But the word of God can say, hey, you are. And so we have the word of God. It is our document. So he's on his journey. And as he's on his journey, just did you think that the devil would not show up? Of course he would show up. The Bible says that on his journey, while he's journeying, there are these two tough guys that meet him on the way. And when they meet him on the way, their, their name is Simbala and uh, Tobiah. And they meet him on the way. And they're wondering where he is going. He says, I'm heading back to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. And the Bible said when they heard that, they were deeply disturbed that a man could come and speak and that the, and, and would come and speak and would come and about and come about about the care of the well-being of Israel. They became disturbed. They're like, we're not going to let this happen. Now you have to understand that nothing went on in Jerusalem for almost 90 years. A hundred years. Ezra led a team back earlier out of, uh, Ezra led a team out earlier, and when he got there and began to rebuild the temple, he had such opposition that the work stopped. And for 15 years, they did nothing until they finally finished the temple. But that was as far as they got. The walls laid in ruin. They were still being attacked. They were still being, having opposition. They were still being attacked. And it was because of these guys that lived in the region that was not going to allow the children of Israel to rise up again and be what God wanted them to be. I can tell you that when you begin to live on mission in your life, you are going to run into opposition as soon as you begin the journey that God has you on. How many are with me? How many know the devil's not just going to sit back and let this church touch the homeless, touch those that are hurting, touch those marriages that are broken? He's not just going to let us walk into the schools and have an impact or walk into the people's lives. He's not going to let us. He doesn't want us to touch the drug addict. He doesn't want us to touch our, uh, our community. He's okay as long as we stay within the walls that we're in. Y'all hearing me? And the reason why some churches never move beyond their walls is because they know there's opposition out there and they're not willing to pay the price to be paid and over to overcome the opposition. But if you got faith and you believe in the word of God and believe that God is who he says he is, we can accomplish everything that God has called us to do. And so they were met with opposition. But here's what I want you to see. He comes down and he arrives in Jerusalem. And the Bible says that one night he went out by himself. And he began to inspect the walls. And he began to look at the walls. And he saw that they were in ruin. He began to take note. He began to gather information. He began to see where the walls were broken. He began to see the devastation and see it for himself. See, Nehemiah had to see it. He had to be there. He had to touch the thing that had been destroyed. 
And so he's there, and then he comes back, and he meets with his guys. And I want us to pick it up in verse 18. I'll pick it up in verse 17, and then we're going to go to a couple other passages of Scripture. Verse 17, it said, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in and how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be in reproach. Chapter 2, verse 17. Now verse 18. Listen to what he says. And I told them of the hand of my God, which has been good upon me. Now, he said that the hand of God had been good upon him. Let me give you the Hebrew translation. What he's saying is, is that first of all, let me tell you about God. I need to remind you how powerful God is, who he is, where he sets, what his authority is. In other words, he's trying to encourage them that the God they serve is much greater than the people that bring opposition to what they're going to do. He's reminding them how good. Listen, I need to remind you this morning, you serve a God that has no rival this morning. You serve a God that is on the throne. You serve a God that has all authority, and you definitely serve a God that wants to lead you into victory and triumph in your life. And then he says this, let me tell you about the good that has come upon me from God. This is what he's saying. He is telling them, he's saying, for I have been touched by God. In other words, he just doesn't, he just doesn't talk about God. He's telling them, I not only know he's all-powerful, our God has touched me. I've been touched by God. How many of you in here, you've been touched by God? God has touched your life. How many know the testimony's different when you know God has touched your life? He's reminding them, I don't, I'm not just telling you something. I'm telling you I'm here today because I was touched by God. God put his hand on me. God touched me. God pulled me out of where I was. God made a difference in my life. He touched me. But listen, this is what it also means. Not only does it mean that God was good to me, that God touched me, but it also means, it means this, it means that I also have touched God. Woo! Come on, y'all. That's good stuff, whether you like it or not. Hey, it's one thing to be touched by God, and we all have been touched by God, but how many of us have pursued God to the point to where we pursued him because we want to touch him? Woo! All right, all right, we're going somewhere. I'm telling you, we're going to take off here in just a minute. Because see, it's not just enough to be touched by God. Nehemiah was touched by God when he got the report that Jerusalem laid in ruins. He was touched, he weeped, and God touched him. He began to pray and call out to God. And God gave him peace and gave him a peace that came on him. He was touched by God. He was touched by God and he had peace. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden now, that wasn't enough. Now he's began to seek God himself and how he could be the answer to what was going on, how he could be used to change the situation. And it's one thing to be touched by God, but you'll never live on mission until you touch God yourself. <laughs> you wanting God to open the door for you? Touch God. You want God to bring breakthrough in your family? Touch God. 
You want God to bring newness of life and change your circumstances? Touch God. Because when you touch God after God has touched you, now you can get up and know that you have been given an assignment to walk in. This church will never touch a community until first we touch God. Woo! Oh man, it gets better. Say it couldn't get any better. It gets better. I'm here to tell you it gets better. So this is the, this is the posture that Nehemiah is in. And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about being touched by God and touching God. And I want to talk about what that means to be touched by God and what does it mean to touch God. Because if you're going to live on mission, you have to understand that when we get out in the middle of the battle and the war is raging and you're in the middle of your assignment and you're in the middle of what God's called you to do and things get tough, things get tight, things get, uh, the, the battle rages and you're in the midst, in the middle of a battle that's going on, you have to remember that you weren't just here because you know of God. You're here because God touched you and he touched you. Now you're moving forward and you can look back and say, because I have been touched, I'm moving forward. Oh, come on. Because you don't always feel God. <laughs> you don't always feel him. But I'm here to tell you if you've been touched by him, <laughs> or if you've touched him, it doesn't matter what your opposition is, you'll fight through it. Because you know he's touched you. You know that he put his hand on you and gave you an assignment. Now, if you would, go with me to the book of Luke chapter 8. I want to I touch a couple of things this morning, and I want to get going because i got to get someplace before too long. Not leave and go, I'm placing my message. You guys always get me preaching, and I never get to what I want to get to. I'm always getting, I'm never right there. So I'm going to be like Roscoe P. Coltrane. Get, 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 this morning. Hallelujah. Luke chapter 8 and beginning in verse, uh, let's begin in verse 45. I want you to see this this morning. Now, I want you to see that verse 45. I'll just go ahead and read. I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm going to preach. All right. Verse 45. And Jesus said, and Jesus said, who touched me? And when all denied, Peter and those around him said, master, the multitudes throng and press you. And you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power had gone out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hid, in other words, where she could not be hidden anymore, she was exposed, she came trembling and falling down before him, and she declared to him in the presence of the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Say immediately. And he said to her daughter, be of good cheer for your faith has made you whole. Jesus said, somebody touched me. Somebody surrounded him. Somebody around him. Somebody touched him. Now it doesn't give a name. Jesus just said, somebody had touched me he said, I felt virtue go out of me. I felt the power of God come out of me because somebody touched me. Somebody got something and I felt it. Somebody drew something from me. 
Somebody was able to get through and touch me and I felt virtue come out of me and somebody touched me and it doesn't tell us what her name is. It just says that she pressed through the crowd and she touched Jesus. Now, if you would go over to the book of Hebrews chapter four, I want to read a passage of scripture that is here. Believe me, I'm going to tie it off. It's almost like a spiritual gumbo. I'm putting the shrimp in and I'm putting all the other stuff, but when we get done, it's going to be all right. It's going to come out right. I love gumbo. If anybody makes good gumbo, I'll take some. Because I can't have banana pudding since I'm a diabetic now. Well, just not a lot. (laughs) I can have some. The book of Hebrews chapter 4. Y'all stay with me. I'm going somewhere. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang tight. Verse 14. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, next week, I'm beginning, I'm going to preach on the priesthood of the believer the next two weeks. You don't want to miss this. Why do we call Jesus our great high priest? Well, come next week and you'll find out. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, some translations say we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with, the, with, the, with our infirmities. If you have the King James, that's what it says, the feelings of our infirmities. If you have the NIV, it says that it who sympathizes with our weaknesses. For we do not have that sympathizes with our weaknesses, but in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now what we have here and what we see here is that that we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched. Who cannot be touched. You got to hear that. Jesus this morning can be touched. He's accessible this morning. We don't have a high priest that cannot be touched or cannot uh, feel the feelings of our infirmities. But we have a high priest that can be touched this morning. Some years ago, they did a study uh, of a group of nurses and, uh, who was measuring the, um, uh, who was measuring the, uh, uh, the stimulation and the physical development of babies in hospitals. And what they did was they took these nurses and they had them to approach the newborns from two different perspectives. The one group of nurses was to feed the babies, to care for the babies, to change them, dress them, take care of all their outer needs. The other nurses were not only just to feed the babies and to care for the babies, but they were to hold the babies, to massage the babies, to speak to the babies, to talk to them, to, to, to uh, uh, massage them and, and, and speak to them. What they found out is, is that the babies that were touched grew much faster than the ones that were not. That there was a connection between the growth 
of the child, not by the care or the food or what they ate or what they drank of just the basic needs, but there was something that stimulated the brain, that brought stimulation to the brain through the nervous system, through the pituitary gland that caused those babies that were touched to be grow faster and to grow at a greater development than those that weren't. Now, it's funny because when you think about this, you think about the thing that makes us grow is that we have the right nutrients, that we have the right minerals, that we have the right, uh, that we have the right proteins in our bodies. We would think that that would be the connecting thing to our growth. But here they found out it was the touch of another human and the touching of another human that stimulated the greatest growth. You know, in the Bible, the Bible said when God created Adam, every, after he created everything, God said these words, right? He said, and it was good. Is that not right? Is that what it says in Genesis? Is that in your Bible? Okay, just want to make sure. We're on the same Bible. But with Adam, what happened with Adam, the only thing that God said wasn't good is that when he saw that even though Adam had power, dominion, and authority, the one thing Adam did not have was companionship, and God saw Adam, and he said that Adam being alone was not good. Right? And that's what he said. And so, and so we learned that the power of touch, you don't always have to... to Feelings don't always have to be verbalized through our words. You all know that, right? In other words, people sometimes express love through touch. They can express passion through touch and worry. Our body language, our eyes, uh, we can talk with our eyes. We can talk with our hand motions. We can talk with, uh, 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 you know, and so when we talk, people see us. And we talk face to face, but we feel people's expressions and know how they feel and feel their passions and feel their anger or feel their love by talking to them, watching their expressions, by touch. You know, when I was a kid, my grandmother, who disciplined me a lot, could talk to me with her eyes. She didn't have to verbalize. She went, And I knew what that was. How many of y'all, y'all had parents that could talk to you with their eyes? I remember pastoring churches and seeing parents in the front row looking to the back when their kid was messing up. And that kid would be like, it was like instant communication. Why? That child could feel what that mom was feeling. I could feel what my grandmother was feeling when she gave me that look. I did, she didn't have to say anything. I knew what was stirring on the inside of her just by the look. Right? Y'all with me? Stay with me. I'm going somewhere. And so today we have Twitter and we have Facebook and we have texting and we have Snapchat and we have Polo Joe with Moco Polo and we have all these other ways of communication without, without seeing one another, right? And so what happens is, sometimes what happens is we, we, we misunderstand people when we can't evaluate their words or their heart by just only hearing and listening to the words. I have miscommunicated with people because they've sent me a text and I think they're communicating one thing, but really they're communicating something else. 
And what gets lost in it is you're not able to see or to feel or to hear or to connect with or to touch with what they're trying to say. And so they say that we now, we're having a generation that it, because they don't understand nonverbals, they do not understand the vital part of communication that comes with touch and feel and hearing, that they have lost the ability to communicate because they're struggling with intimate relationships because they do not know how they're supposed to feel, how they're supposed to communicate, because everything is through text and everything is through Facebook, everything is through Instagram, and so there's no deep, intimate relationships because people are not eye-to-eye anymore, they're not touching one another, they're not expressing to one another, and so the psychologists say this is a generation that is becoming cold to relationships, and we have less intimate relationships today because people have lost the ability to learn how to touch one another with our feelings, with our eyes, with our touch, and with our communication. That's a deep thing. That is a deep thing. Listen, Nehemiah, learn that God touched him and he knew and learned from God from being touched. When we look at this, the writer of Hebrews in this passage that I read, the writer is is doing this all through the book of Hebrews. There's this comparative narrative that takes place that whoever the writer is, if it's Paul, then he's writing. He's comparing the Hebrews. He's comparing the Old Covenant, the Old Testament with the New Testament. Now listen, I believe the Bible is a one-book book. I know we have an old covenant and a new covenant, but there are principles of the Old Testament that carry through into the New Testament, and that it's a one-book book. You don't separate the Old and New Testament from one another. We're experiencing in the new what was type and shadow in the old. And if you want to know the depth of something in the New Testament, go find out how it was used in the Old Testament and you'll have a greater understanding of how powerful it is when you look at the type and bring it into the reality of the New Testament. Paul was doing this comparativeness of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And through the book of Hebrews, he's like doing, y'all remember the old Pepsi taste challenge? Right? You taste Pepsi and Coke in a cup and you decide which one tastes better. In other words, what he's doing, he's saying that the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, that what we have through the blood of Jesus is a better thing than the other old covenant. How many know we have a better covenant today? We know that God is always taking us to something better, not lesser. Right? We have a better covenant today. And, and God, is, God is moving us forward. God is not busy trying to make us go backwards. He wants us to move forward. God doesn't want us to diminish. He wants us to increase. He doesn't want to divide us. He wants to multiply us. He doesn't want to subtract from us, but he wants to add unto us. God wants to take us from faith to faith, from glory to glory. is where God wants to take us. And we have to know that by faith, that sometimes... Uh, we have to understand that God is taking us to a greater place. In other words, sometimes we think that when God subtracts something from our life, we believe that life is in decline, right? We think that things are in decline. If something's been subtracted or something's lost or we lose something, all of a sudden we say, well, my life is declining. 
The truth is, if you're walking with Jesus, your life is always moving forward. He's always taking you to better. He's always taking you to greater. He's always taking, you may not feel like he's taking you to greater. But what you have to understand is that what God is taking out of your life may be the thing that needs to be out of your life. Huh? Y'all with me? Sometimes when God moves people out of your life, it's a reason why God moves people. Your crazy uncle Sally, Aunt Sally, God takes her out of your life. There's probably a reason why she needs to be out of your life. Because God is moving us forward. He's not moving us backwards. And so God... It says we don't have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In the old covenant, the high priest could not be touched. In the old covenant, he could not be touched. It was about religion. It was about duty. It was about, it was cold. It was sterile. It was about religion. It was about duty. But what he's saying in the new covenant, you can touch the high priest. How can you touch the high priest? Through relationship. Jesus wants relationship with us. We can touch him. He's warm. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus wants to touch our lives, stimulate our lives. So in the New Testament, we have a better covenant because we have a high priest who can be touched, where in the Old Testament, he could not be touched. Are you all with me? In Galatians, the Bible said the law is the schoolmaster. And and it's what brings us into grace. In the Old Testament, the law prefaced grace. The law, the rituals, the high priest couldn't be touched. In other words, if you touched something dead, you couldn't touch the high priest. I don't know if I want you touching me if you've touched something dead. But you had to go through ceremonial cleansing and washing in order to be around the priesthood. Do you remember when Moses gave, was given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and it says they approached Sinai and fire was up on the mountain and thunder up on the mountain and they said, stay away. Don't touch the mountain. Religion says, don't draw nigh to God, but draw away from God. The purpose of religion is to get you into being dutiful instead of relationship with God. Religion will make you cold, dead, and sterile. Religion says stay away. But I'm here to tell you, relationship says draw nigh to God, and God will draw nigh to you. Draw close to him, and he'll draw close to you. The new covenant says that Jesus made a way that we could have personal relationships with him. We can know him, talk to him. I don't need a special person to take me to Jesus. I don't need a special seat in the church. I don't need a special person to go into a booth and pray for me. I don't need to wear special clothes or to walk a special way or to say different things. I just need to call upon the name of Jesus and I'm saved by grace and now. I can boldly come before the throne of God and obtain mercy. Woo! Some people call and say, Pastor, pray to God for me. Well, pray yourself. Hey, listen, I'm not against you calling me and asking for prayer. I don't want that to get on Facebook. I'm mean. What I'm saying is, you got the same access I got. I said, you got the same access I got. You have a way to get to him like I can get to him. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus died a better covenant. He's a high priest that's provided much greater for us. He unifies, he don't divide. Woo! And here's what happens in churches. Religion segregates and divides. It becomes dogmatic and irrational. 
Because what happens is religion will drive people to love principles more than they love people. <laughs> Y'all, okay, I, I got the early crowd this morning. Listen, religion holds dear to principle and lets go of people. But relationships touch people. <laughs> okay, all right. Let me tell you something. If you want to know what God cares about, look at the person that's sitting next to you. That's who God cares about this morning. You want to know what God cares about? Look at the person in front of you and back of you. That's who God cares about this morning. Because the Bible said, for God, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It didn't say that Jesus died for principles. It said that he died for people. And Jesus died for people. And the church has to be about touching people instead of upholding religious principles. Don't let the devil tell you that you don't have value this morning. Don't let the devil tell you that you can't be used because of your mistakes or because of what you did or the circumstances of your birth or the economy that surrounds your life or the, or the intelligence that you have. I'm here to tell you that Jesus died for you and if he died for you, you are worth dying for. You've got value this morning. I said you got value this morning. That should erase every bit of doubt you should have and worth in your life. Why? Because you were purchased with the blood of Jesus. In other words, you were acquired by the highest price that could be paid. It'd be different if he paid a quarter for you. Some of you a quarter, some of you a nickel, some of you a penny. But he didn't. He died for mankind. He died for each one of you. He died for all of us. And you've got worth and you've got value. Don't let the devil tell you that you don't have a value, that God can't use you, that God can't change you, that you don't have hope. I'm here to tell you God is in the business of reaching down into the impossible and pulling people up into the impossible. And as a church to live on mission, we've got to be about people. We can't be but just about principles. But I have to be honest with you. I don't know how good we are at it. But it doesn't matter. We're going to get better at it. We're going to get better at loving people. We're going to get better at touching people. Why? Because we've been touched. And because we've been touched, we're going to touch him. And when we touch him, we're going to be qualified to touch others. Woo! Oh, come on now. I wish I... Woo! Hallelujah. 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 Religion says stay back. But Jesus says come on in. He's accessible. You can reach him. You can reach him this morning. And you can touch him. Now that brings me to where I want to get this morning. Or close to where I want to get. He's so accessible this morning. Some people evaluate you on what you did or what you have. Or what you don't have. Or where you're from. Right? But he knows what we really feel. Jesus said, it's not who you are, what you have, 
what you did, where you're from, that touches me. What touches him is who you are. I can be touched by, he can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. What does that mean? What are the feelings of our infirmities? Well, infirmity is an interesting word here. There's many, there's many meanings. Uh, the, the root word here means weakness or means disease or means sickness. It, can, it also means not only, it means to be unhealthy body, soul, spirit in the whole man. It means to have, a, have your soul be sick as well as your body be sick. In other words, we have a high priest that can touch the infirmities, has the feelings of our... What are the feelings of the infirmities? The feelings of the infirmities are the consequences that come with the infirmity. So if the infirmity in your life is sickness, then Jesus understands the feelings that you have as you walk through that sickness. If the infirmities that you have is the consequence of choices of sin then Jesus can feel the infirmity of the struggle that you have from the choice of living in sin. In other words, he feels what you feel. He's not just somebody that's a representative of God that doesn't know his people. Jesus said that he came to earth and was tempted in all points just like us. He knows what you feel this morning. He feels what you feel. He knows what your need is. He knows what you're struggling. He feels them and he knows them. He's touched by the infirmities of your sicknesses, the infirmities of hang in our lives. In other words, it's an interesting word. I feel it means it draws compassion to. In other words, if the, your infirmity brings embarrassment, Jesus feels that. If it brings tears, he feels that. If it brings, if it brings, if it has needs, he feels that. If it brings pain, he feels that. He feels that. He knows that. In other words, in the Old Testament, he didn't feel that. But it brings two meaning to the scripture that says that by his stripes we are healed. He's wounded for our transgressions. Woo! I'm getting blessed right now because I know I got a Savior that can feel like I feel. That he knows how I hurt. He knows the infirmities of my walk. I'm not alone. I may feel alone, but I'm not alone. Woo! If you get that this morning, you'll understand that you have a high priest that's greater. And so this is where I wanted to get to this morning. This is where I want to take us. This is where I want to land this plane this morning. Because we got baptism here in a minute. But listen to me. This woman with the issue of blood. Jesus is walking with this crowd and he's, he's, he's walking about. As he is going about, Jesus is on his way. And guess where he's on his way? He's on his way to pray for the sick daughter of a man named Jairus. Jairus had come to him Asked Jesus to come pray for his daughter. And as he is going, Jesus is on his way. And here's Jairus, who is this influential man. We know who he is because he has his name. But the Bible just says that she is a woman that has an issue of blood. We know that who he is. And he's, he, he moves forward. He goes out. And Jairus is a person of significance. In other words, but here's the thing about Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't matter what your significance is. Jesus treats those that are significant and well-known the same as he treats those that are not well-known. In other words, Jesus' response is not, is not by what means you have. Jesus' response is to your need. Jesus responds to need. He don't respond to just people. In other words, just because you have better means than someone else doesn't mean that Jesus gives you more attention. We see that in this passage. Jesus is responding to Jairus' need. Some people, some religious people, would not have responded to Jairus because of who he was and what he represented. They would have said, no way, Jose. I don't want to identify with Rome at all. But Jesus said, I'm not looking at you as a Roman centurion. I'm looking at you as a man that has a need that needs to be touched. Some people would have looked at the woman with the issue of blood and said, you're unclean. And if I touch you, I'm unclean. So the law says. And some wouldn't have helped her or touched her because they didn't want to be unclean. But Jesus said, I don't care what your past is. I don't care if you're unclean. I don't care what you've been through. I'm going to touch your need because you are more important than what you represent. Woo! Come on. Listen, she is known by her infirmity. And the problem is our lives, sometimes we have walked. Some people get the reputation through their infirmity. And that's how they're known. They're known by their bad reputation. They're known by what they did. They know. And you know who keeps them there? Religious people. Hey, is Johnny a good guy? Yeah, Johnny's a good guy. But Johnny had an affair on his wife 15 years ago. Don't you think it's about time to let Johnny go? If Jesus has forgiven him, why can't you forgive him? Why does he always have to be identified by what he did or who he is or what he represents? Because to live on mission, to be touched by God and to touch God, you have to understand, you go after everybody. Everybody gets to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm getting there. Hang with me. I'm going. I'm going. Y'all get me riled up. Hallelujah. Whoo. Listen, Jairus, who was a man used to fixing everything, was brought to a place for something he could not fix. And I want to tell you, there'll be times in your life, I don't care how good a producer of life you are, there's going to be some things that come in your life that you can't fix, only God can fix. That's a job for Jesus. You don't have to just throw your hands up and say there's no hope. I'm telling you, as long as we're on this earth, there's hope. As long as Jesus is alive and as long as this world is what it is and as long as he's resurrected, there is hope. There is hope. It is a job for Jesus. It's just right for Jesus. If you can't, he can. If you can't, he can. Jesus is focused on getting to Jairus' house and he's on his way there. He's focused on it. Why? Because he's headed someplace 
because he's been summoned to touch somebody's life. But as he goes, he's interrupted. Here's what I've learned. I've learned that it's not so much about the destination that God is taking us, but what happens along the way. We get so focused on point A to point B that the greatest lessons that are taught are on our journey. In the moment, the process of waiting for God to touch our lives, waiting for God to move. We don't always get what we want when we want it, how we want it. Sometimes the answer is delayed. But I'm here to tell you that even if God delays our answer, there's something we can learn in the journey and in the process along the way. Because you'll learn more along the journey of the process than you will once you get to the destination. And you may need a miracle in your life, and before the miracle happens, you're going to learn a lot more as you go on the journey before you get to the miracle. I'm telling you, Nehemiah is going to learn a lot more about God on his journey to rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem than he would ever learn sitting and being a cupbearer for the king. And the journey is going to teach him much. It's going to teach you much. It's going to teach all of us much. The journey will teach you a lot. Let me tell you, he prayed for four months waiting on God. I want to tell you that prayer got answered as soon as he prayed. You say, well, why did it take four months? Because God was preparing Nehemiah for the answer that he had for him. And the reason why sometimes there's a wait is not because God is reluctant to answer the prayer. It's because God's trying to get you to the place that you can steward the miracle in a way that it needs to be stewarded. It's not that God's withholding from you. God wants you to get to the place he wants you to get to so that you can handle the breakthrough, so you can handle the miracle. And he's teaching you on the journey. Woo! Mm. And while Jesus is journeying, all of a sudden there's this interruption. This woman on the side of the road in this procession, she reaches up and she touches him. All of a sudden, she touches him and her crisis gets Jesus' attention for a moment. The woman has no name. She's, she's known by her problem. The problem is bigger than her even her life's identity. The issue she's been overwhelmed with The Bible says she's had this condition for 12 years. And when the condition first hit her, she had the means to deal with it. She had relationships. She had family. That was taken away. She may have had a spouse, and we know that was taken away. She had money because the Bible said she spent money on physicians, and that was taken away. She had physicians that were trying to cure the problem, but now they're nowhere to be around. And and, and now, all of a sudden, this prolonged problem, it draws her. Even the strongest of people can grow weary in periods of waiting on God. Sometimes, 12 years she battled this. 12 years she battled. 12 years she battled. After living in a state of isolation, in this place of loneliness, listen, I can tell you that sometimes whatever your issue is, Sometimes your issue will isolate you and separate you from those whom you love. You got an alcohol problem, it'll separate you. It'll isolate you. You got a drug problem, it'll it'll isolate you. 
Whatever your issue is, if it goes prolonged enough, a long time enough, it'll separate you from the very people that you love. I'm here to tell you I lived that by experience. I've watched it in people's lives that I have loved. I've watched their issue take them away from the very people that love them most. And your issue has the ability to pull you away from the people that love you most, separate you, and isolate you to a place. You'll end up being isolated and ended up being in a place. But faith is born when man's ability fails to come through. Faith is born. Faith erupts. At the point of human limitation, you don't realize, you don't believe that God can step in. And in a moment, God, when you run out of options, God can show up. This woman came to rock bottom. Her problem was bigger than man. Most miracles, Jesus is looking at them. But Jesus is just walking by. And as he's walking by, He's not looking at her. In other words, I I like this woman because in her, you see this persistence that's in her. She presses through the crowd. She reaches through the crowd. You see that she wants it bad enough. She wants it bad enough. That she wanted to do whatever it took to get there, to be there. She was willing to be ostracized. She was willing to be unpopular. She was willing as long as she could touch Jesus. What are we willing to do in order to touch Jesus? How radical, how far are we willing to go in order to touch him? How are we able, how are we going to to touch him? And the Bible's interesting because the Bible says this, that, that she said to him, she said within herself, she said, if I could but touch the hem of his garment. In the Greek, it means this. It means that she kept saying, if I could touch him, 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 if I could touch him. That's what it meant. She kept repeating and repeating. She didn't say it once. Why? There was a termination in her to touch God. She was going to touch God. There was a determination is, I'm going. She kept saying, I'm going to touch him. I'm going to touch him. In other words, she was doing something in a day when women weren't high esteemed. She was going to be criticized in a crowd of men to break through. And she was going to break a social norm and be a social disgrace. But she said in herself, I'm willing to pay that price because I've got to touch him. Man, if we had some desperate people that are willing to touch him. Let me tell you, she, she was persevering. Now, I thought about this for a second. Think about this. Here's Jesus, who's a healthy man, and he's young, and he's with his cohorts, his disciples, or whoever he's with, and he's walking, and he's a young man. But here's a woman who, for 12 years, has been weak, who is sick, who has trouble moving. And she keeps up with him because she caught him. She caught him and grabbed the hem of his garment as he was passing by. You know what that said about her? That said that she was going to reach Jesus. That she wasn't going to allow her history and her circumstance to keep her from touching Jesus. Let me tell you something about touching Jesus. Sometimes you've got to crawl over your history and over the obstacle of your history in order to get touched. Her history was her obstacle. 
Her history was she wasn't healed. She spent all of her money. Her history was she was unclean. She was unacceptable in the religious world. That's what her history was. But sometimes, listen, somebody's in here this morning and you need to hear. Your history has held you tight and said you'll never be, you'll never go, you can never have, you'll never walk, you'll never do this. I'm here to tell you, you've got to be like the woman with the issue of blood and crawl over top of your history that says you can't and grab a hold of Jesus. I'm going to close with this. Woo! Now, this is going to set you on fire. I don't know if y'all can handle it or not. <laughs> she had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and she caught him. She didn't even touch him, she touched that which was touching him. She touched the stitches of the hem of his garment. But then it said an interesting word it says, and immediately she was healed. Now it took her 12 years to get there, but once Jesus touches you, I'm telling you, he can take 12 years and wipe it away just like that and work in your life immediately, right at the moment that he touches you. I'm telling you, you're in this room and you're not saved and you don't know Christ, and your past is screaming at you and telling you. Your reputation has been this and been that. I'm telling you that this morning, if you'll let Jesus touch you, old things will pass away. All things will become new. Your history will no longer be an obstacle in your life. Huh? Why? Because God is not a sometimes God. He's not a every once in a while God. He's an on-time God, all-the-time God, anytime God, whenever you're ready for God kind of God. <laughs> Why? Because he's God. I just wanted to say that. Woo. And Jesus said, who touched me? <laughs> who touched me? Was it you? 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 Who touched me? Now this confused me for a while because he's being pressed by the crowd. And his disciples are all around and everybody's around. And he says, who touched me? I felt power or virtue come out of me. Who touched me? Now, we sometimes read those words in English and we say, well, he was being touched by a lot of people. No, but this is different. Because the Bible said that when she touched him, that word touched there, it means this. It means that she clung to. It means she attached to. It said that she gripped or grabbed onto. It was like a clasp. In other words, when he touched, when she touched him, all of a sudden, what was in her and the desperation drew out of him what was in him. Now listen. 
Peter became confused because he said, what are you talking about, Lord? We're all touching you. But she touched him different than anybody else touched him. And that's the difference between playing church and having church. Because what can happen is Jesus, we can come preach Jesus all we want in this building. And many of us come in here and we're around Jesus and we're touching Jesus. And Jesus is around and we sing about him in the songs and we shout hallelujah to the goodness of God and we're all around here and we're all touching him. But are we really touching him? Because if we were touching him this morning, there would be a withdrawal that would come out of him that would be manifested in this place. That tells me you can be around spiritual things and not get spiritually touched. That's an indictment of everybody that was around Jesus. But let me, I gotta gotta tell you the meaning of this word. (laughs) Because the root word of this word means to, I'm glad we got a Greek professor here in our church. I want you to go study that word, Dr. O'Neill. That word touched. Because when I began to study it, it meant this. It meant to be touched. And when he he was touched, it drew fire out of him. (laughs) Hey. Hey. Are y'all hearing me this morning? If I wasn't afraid I'd break my leg, I'd jump off this platform and run down that aisle right now. She grabbed him, and out of him, fire, as if fire was being withdrawn. In other words, it means to kindle. He was kindled. He was stirred up. It was mean what was in him was stirred up and pulled out of him. My God, if we could get God's people so stirred up to touch him, that fire would be released out of him into our lives. Woo! Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Whew. I want to know if there's anybody here that's interested in touching him this morning. Is there anybody interested in touching him? <laughs> oh, that was real convincing. It was a release of compassion that came out of him. It stirred his compassion. And I want to tell you, we got a bunch of churches that are touching him, but they're not drawing from him. And he's not releasing compassion and fire into their congregations because the way that they're touching him is through the experience of religion and not relationship. They've not learned how to overcome the obstacles and position themselves to be touched by God. Adam, if you'll come, if you'll come, if you'll come. She came forth and Jesus said, who touched me? And they're looking around and And she looks up and she says, it was me. She had the courage to say it was me. You know, it took a lot of courage because she was living in a man's world. And there's no way it was protocol for a woman to interrupt that procession of men. Just like the woman with the alabaster box broke in to the the meal and washed washed Jesus' feet with her hair with the ointment. She broke all protocol and became offensive to the religious people. She had courage. She broke protocol. She climbed over her past. She was not only socially, socially 
out of order. She was theologically out of order because the Bible said that anyone that had the issue of blood was considered unclean and could not touch anybody and especially could not touch Jesus who was the representative of a rabbi. She broke through and and when she looked up and Jesus said, it was me. You know why she was willing to face the consequences? She was willing to face the consequences because her healing, her healing outweighed the consequences that would come in being exposed to someone who was healed by Jesus. It said she was immediately healed. And she, inside herself, she had confidence because she knew inside herself she was whole. Y'all hearing me this morning? Let me tell you where courage comes to live out on mission, to share Jesus. I shared Jesus because I have the confidence that when he touched me and when I touched him, I was made whole. Inside of me, inside me, I know I'm whole. That gives me the courage to stand in the face of people that's, that throw insults and unbelief, that make fun of Christians, that call you names. If you don't, listen, I'm sure of the work that God done in me. I'm sure of the work that God and Christ had done inside me. And because of that, it's given me confidence. Last thing, we're going to pray. Think about this. Jesus is on his way to heal a young girl and a mature woman interrupts the procession. Now think about this for a moment. You have a young girl who's 12 years old. You have a mature woman who has been battling an issue for 12 years. When she got her issue... This girl was born. As she grew into her experience, she was trying to be healed of hers. Her affliction grew, and she grew into her condition. This woman was hemorrhaging and was, and was lack of strength and weak, and this girl was dead. Because when Jesus said that, somebody whispered in his ear and said, Jairus' daughter is dead. Mm. Jesus gives life back here, and then loss of life is here. But when I read the scripture, it says that he's the same yesterday, yes. today, right. and forever. Yes. <laughs> he heals one. Now he's going to resurrect another. He takes her by the hand. And he said she just sleeps and resurrects her from the dead. Two generations. One is older, struggling with its strength and weakness. Fighting through, trying to get the strength 
to finish the race. And one generation is dead and needs revived. One is resurrected. One is healed. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and said, I'm getting ready to touch an older generation. And they're going to get their strength back for the end of the race. And all their ailments and all their infirmities are going to be touched. And they're going to get everything back that was stolen in the course of life. And then he, and then the Spirit of the Lord told me that he's going to reach down to a generation that everybody has said is dying and is dead. Generation Z, the millennials. It says they're not going to make it. I'm here to tell you that God's going to reach down and he's not only going to touch this generation, he's going to resurrect this generation. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.